Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Have you ever wanted to know the best way to motivate someone? Motivation is a hot topic in corporate leadership, relationship coaching, and just about every area of life. It's seen as the ultimate skill to have for boosting sales and influencing people in your network and getting what you want out of life. But what is the secret? How do you truly motivate others to achieve desired outcomes? Well, our guest today, Susan Fowler, says you actually can't motivate people. She's a consultant, coach, and author in the field of personal empowerment, and she's going to share with us just why motivation doesn't work and what actually does. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Susan. Thank you so much, Teresa. Happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you. So you recently authored a book, Why Motivating People Doesn't Work, which seems somewhat counterintuitive, but I guess when you think about it, external motivation doesn't really work. So what's well, the Well, actually, you know what? The reason that we titled the book what we did was because people are always motivated. They're always motivated. It's just that oftentimes it's in suboptimal or um, unsustainable ways. And so what we really want to get leaders, um, and entrepreneurs, parents uh, to understand is that you can't motivate people because they're already motivated. The question is why. What's the reason for their motivation? Because the reason that they're motivated is what you need to be dealing with, not whether they're motivated or not. So is it an external motivation, internal motivation thing? If someone, um, are, are you referring to if someone is internally motivated by something, it doesn't matter what's going on on the external unless that person taps into what they may um, want? Yes and no. And let me just say that there's just been a lot written and a lot of people um, looking at the whole idea of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And the problem with that is that it boils the science of motivation into this kind of black and white duality, which doesn't really allow you to um, do much with what the true science about motivation says. So, for example, um, you know, you might say, oh, I just want everyone to be intrinsically motivated. That motivation has to come from within. But what's the chances that when we, the actual definition of intrinsic motivation is that people will do what they're doing for the pure joy of doing it. It's not for any kind of other reason. And if that's the case, then, my gosh, I, I mean, you've developed a life doing what you want to do, but does that mean that you're always intrinsically motivated? I would imagine that there are some things during your day that, you know, you kind of go, ooh, I've got to do that. I have to do that. I've got to pay my bills or I've got to do this, that, or the other thing. In my life, traveling, when I say to myself, oh, I have to go through security at the airport, I'm sorry, but I'll never be intrinsically motivated to go through security. So when we just talk about intrinsic and extrinsic, it's so limiting that we can't do much with the whole idea of motivation. So what I'd like to explain today or, or, or have your listeners consider is a spectrum of motivational possibilities, some of which the science says are really healthy, uh, sustainable, more powerful ways, or what we call optimally motivating ways of being motivated, and more suboptimally motivating reasons. 
And so but that's what we need to look at. It's not if a person is motivated or not, but why they're motivated. What's the reason for their motivation? So if you're able to tap into the reason for the motivation, how can you motivate someone from the external? Is it just being in congruence or being in line with that motivation? What it is is having the skill to have motivational outlook conversations with individuals so that they can understand their choices because that is an internalization process. It's something that is coming from within them. So let me just address the issue that I think that you're, you're you know, tapping um, into, and that is that what most leaders think motivates people, which is like money or power or status, giving people things, incentives, rewards in order to do something, that in fact they work. Um, people are motivated by money. People are motivated by power and status and by prizes and incentives. There's no doubt they're motivated by those things. The question is, is that the best type of uh, motivation that a person can have? And what kind of damage are you doing in terms of not only that person's capacity to sustain that motivation over time, uh, what's your ability to continue to keep upping the ante and keep, you know, giving them more and more and more? But what the science really says is that when people are motivated in suboptimal ways by money, power, status, and all of those other uh, forms of what we call suboptimal motivation, that it's like the junk food of motivation. It's like, wow, you can motivate them for a moment, just like when you eat a donut or, you know, have, you know, really sugary drink, your blood sugar spikes and you have this burst of energy. But then what happens? You crash. And when you crash, you crash to a point where your blood sugar is even lower than it was when you started. And so you need more caffeine or you need more sugar or you need, you know, more carbs or whatever. Well, the same thing's true with motivation. But the problem is, it's just like when you are, have a diet of junk food for a very long time, it literally affects your health and well-being. So what we're seeing is in organizations extraordinary disengagement in the workplace. We see organizations losing billions of dollars because of disengaged employees. We see mental and physical health claims uh, that are out, you know, outlandish. We see uh, turnover and uh, absenteeism and just low productivity. And all of that is a, a result or it's, it's um, a large part of people being suboptimally motivated over time. So what we want to teach leaders and individuals, by the way, is how to shift their motivation from being suboptimal to optimal. So that's a role that leaders can play. It's also something that individuals can learn to do for themselves. Hmm, interesting. So how does that play into, you know, motivation by fear? There's some people that, oh, yeah. you know, that's, there's that whole... We see that a lot right now, don't we? I'm sorry? We see that a lot in our world right now. We do. So, you know, people are, um, and it's that whole Tony Robbins concept of, you know, um, are you driven by motivation away from something you don't uh-huh. want or towards something that you do want? Yeah, I, I love that concept. I remember, I remember first hearing that so many years ago, and it really stuck with me. And so um, maybe it would be helpful if I explained if, if it would be okay that there are six motivational possibilities that the science of motivation has been able to distinguish and that one of those includes motivation through fear um, or pressure or tension. 
so there's three suboptimal motivational outlooks, three ways that we motivate people in the workplace that's, that are suboptimal. One is people could be disinterested, have a disinterested motivational outlook. And that happens a lot when people are so overwhelmed, they just check out. They don't even know what to do. So in a lot of change initiatives and the fact that people don't have the skills to cope with ambiguity or the, or the you know, the changes happening in the, in the workplace or the world, they just kind of check out. They can't find anything of value, either in what they're being asked to do or just in their circumstances. The second form of suboptimal motivation is what we call external, and that's a lot of what you were talking about earlier, which is um, when we try to motivate people through money incentives, rewards, but they can be uh, tangible rewards or they can be intangible rewards like power and status, that corner office, or being the number one salesperson or winning, you know, winning the, um, the award for the most improved person or whatever. Um, those are external reasons. Uh, and then the third suboptimal motivational outlook is what we call imposed, and that's the one you're, you're talking about when it comes to fear. That the imposed motivational outlook is when people are acting out of fear, guilt, shame, to avoid something that makes them feel bad. Uh, it's when they feel like they have to do something or else. Um, and it, it could be as mild as, you know, have you ever done this? Like you accept a meeting maker. Maybe you even send out the meeting maker, like to have lunch with someone or have a meeting. And then you look at your calendar and you go, oh, I have to go to that meeting. I don't feel like going to that meeting. You accepted it. You know, you, maybe you created it. And yet you feel imposed, like you have to do it. And you're not, in that moment, you're not feeling any value around it or you feel like there's other things that are more valuable. That would be the imposed motivational outlook. But also, what leaders don't do and they don't understand how debilitating it is, is that they create an environment of fear, pressure, tension. Um, they focus on metrics without meaning. And all of those actually are suboptimally, uh, suboptimal ways of motiv- motivating people in the workplace. Hmm. How interesting, and how many of us are guilty of all of the above, right? Oh, Teresa, it's just like junk food is easy, right? You know, think about it. It's fast. It's, you know, it's, it's there, you know. And so we keep defaulting to it because um, of animal studies that were done back in the 30s and 40s that showed that we could condition parrots or animals to do what we want them to do if we give them something. Um, and it worked, and it even works with people. It's just that it, de- it depends on how you define worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does it really work? Um, it, it, you might get some results in the short term, but even then, the, the research is showing that people's productivity, creativity, innovation, quality of their work is sub, subpar when they're suboptimally uh, motivated. Interesting. So what is the alternative to motivating people? Yeah, what's the, what's the right way of doing this, right? <laughs> yeah, what's the healthy alternative? Well, it's what we call optimal motivation, and there's three different types of optimal motivation that science has um, found. And there's, there's reasons for these, which I would lo- love to explain in just a moment. But one of the um, optimal motivational outlooks is called the aligned motivational outlook. And that is when whatever you're being asked to do or whatever you're doing, you are able to find some value in it. Let's say that, for example, today, I, I was optimally motivated to be on this phone call with you because, frankly, every time I have an interview with someone of your caliber that's, a, that's really good at what you do, I learn something. Uh, I learn how to articulate my ideas better, or I say something, oh, I don't ever want to do that again, 
or you ask me a question that makes me think about things in ways I hadn't thought about it before. So I was really eager for today's phone call because of my value around growth and learning. Then there's the integrated motivational outlook, and that is even a deeper form of uh, motivation when a person can attach a more noble purpose um, to whatever it is they're doing, or they're doing something because it's just who they are. Uh, I know somebody who started running because she wanted to be um, a good, healthy mother for her daughter, and this was this woman was having a, a child at an old when she was at an older age, and she was afraid of getting too old to be able to really be active with her daughter. So she started running. She says, "I hated running, but I had this noble purpose to be a better mother and to live longer and to be useful." Now, when you see Debbie, she runs every day, and it's just who she is. Um, the purpose became self-identified. You know, she became self-identified. If you ask Debbie, who are you? She'd say, well, I'm a mother, I'm a runner. You know, it's just part of who she is. And so that is the integrated motivational outlook. And then finally, the inherent motivational outlook is what we were speaking about earlier. It's the most intrinsic of all the motivational outlooks. It's when you're doing something just because you love it. It's fun. You don't even know why you love it. It's just that you always have or you, you do. And there's no value necessarily attributed. So for me, Candy Crush I'm inherently motivated to do it. There's no real purpose behind it. There's no real value behind it. It's just something I enjoy doing, and I can't even tell you why. Because it was so, designed to motivate people to keep playing it so that they well, can... Well, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to tie into that because that, that's what's underlying the six motivational outlooks. So, you know, hopefully we can get to that because that's, you're absolutely right. And gamers know how to tap into certain things. Um, and those are the same kinds of things that we can tap into, but at a higher, more conscious, um, more profound way. Well, let's talk about it right now, because they, they figured it out, right? Gamers have figured out how to design their games to tap into that addictive part of our personality that motivates us to keep playing. Well, and that is why um, if you if people see my book, the, on the inside cover of the book, there's the spectrum of motivation model. They will see that the inherent motivational outlook actually dips um, when it comes to uh, the quality of your experience. Because even though the research says that when you're inherently motivated, when you're really enjoying something and you love it, you can get in the flow. You can you know you have um, optimal energy. It's it's very um, you know, it's very invigorating. It also has the capacity to become uh, disharmonious or obsessive, uh, and it has the capacity to not be purposeful or valuable. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of a fine line that we walk, isn't it? So, um, so what the research for me? This is the most exciting part of the research, by the way. Um, I, the the research and motivation uh, has been evolutionary, but I think that what I'm about to share with you is, in my mind, it's revolutionary. It, it changes everything. It really changes everything. So all the ways that we've been trying to, quote-unquote, motivate people and ourselves are now turned on its ear because the old traditional motivation had an assumption that people are basically lazy. They don't want to do what you're asking them to do. That's why you have to, quote-unquote, motivate them. You have to incentivize them. You've got to give them something to make them do what you want them to do. But what the science of motivation shows is that people's natural way of being, what they truly desire in life, 
is to thrive. Nobody wants to be bored and disengaged and not contribute and live on the fringes and to, to not be in communion with others and to be isolated. Nobody who's healthy wants that. And when people don't feel that, that's when they become unhealthy, by the way. And so people want to thrive. And we now know through the science of motivation how to promote human thriving. And it's through three psychological needs that are every bit as important to our thriving as our three biological needs for food, water, and sex. And so those three psychological needs are what are behind the motivational outlooks I described. In the suboptimal motivational outlooks, people's psychological needs are not being satisfied. When you have an optimal motivational outlook, your psychological needs are being satisfied. So that's the key. That's the key. And that's what leaders and individuals need to begin to focus on, is move away from all the rewards and pressure and tension and stress and start to focus on how do we actually satisfy people's psychological needs. Well, and they've done the studies, and I, I forget the um, the video, but it's on, on YouTube, and it's got millions of downloads showing the studies that they did, and it's done with the drawing. And Yeah, and so uh, let me address that, because um, it, it's one of my favorites, too, and it went viral, and, and Dan Pink was really lucky to, to have uh, <laughs> the, the, the people use that as a promotional tool for their their. Yes. Um, for, for their, you know, their product, which is fantastic. Um, and so Dan was basing his research and that TED Talk and that, um, that video you're speaking about on the same research that I'm talking about, but he altered it a little bit, I think, to, to make it accessible um, to people. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just trust that people can handle what the science says. So I'm going to give you um, the... I guess the the real names for the psychological needs and have have you your audience uh, trust that this is really what they need to know in order to take advantage of the science. So the three psychological needs are for autonomy, relatedness, and um, uh, competence. And you can see these three psychological needs. By the way, even though there's compelling science, you can see that at play with any baby. Do you, you have children, right? I Teresa? do. Yeah, and, and how old are they? I have a son that's 19. Oh, my gosh, you do? You don't, you don't sound or look like you should <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, anyway, good for you. Uh, so when your son was growing up, I'm sure you noticed these three psychological needs. So let's say that um, you were trying to feed him, right, and you're bringing the spoon up to his mouth. There probably were times when he did a couple things. Like one would be he shut his mouth and wouldn't let you in. And he would do it right at the last minute, so and then turn his head, so you get a smear of carrots and peas right. all across his face. Right. Um, and then there were times when I bet he even grabbed for the spoon, and even though he didn't have the competence to find his mouth, he wanted to be the one controlling what was going into it. So from the earliest of, of our ages, of our, our early time in our age, we seek autonomy. Autonomy is the perception that we have choices. It is our desire to have control over what's happening to us, to feel like we are um, kind of the masters of our universe, if you will, that we, that we are, um, have our own volition, that we're acting out of our own volition. So when people do things to us and we perceive that it's being done to us instead of with us or that we are doing it out of our own choice, it erodes the psychological need for autonomy. Mm. 
and, and so this is just this is just huge. And so, uh, ironically, when we say, you know, sell, we need to really increase your sales because then you'll be number one and you'll win this award. What the research shows, and what that uh, video was sharing, sharing that you know um, Dan shared a lot of the great research around it, is that it literally erodes people's sense of autonomy because now their focus is on the reward rather than the tasks they were doing, and they don't control the reward. They don't control who's giving it or if they receive it, and so you actually are eroding people's sense of autonomy when you use suboptimal forms of motivation or or when people buy into that. Well, as a parent... Mm-hmm. You know, one I think one of the greatest fears we have is that our children are not going to be motivated to become, you know, self-actualized um, adults, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, parents are in the front line with their with their children in terms of, you know, how we deal with them, how we persuade, how we motivate them. <laughs> and, you know, there are some kids that are born that they, they seem to be just totally self-directed and motivated, in, in, you know, and internally, like they want to do great at school and they want to learn and they want to do all sorts of things. And then there are some kids that appear not to have that motivation, and yeah, and it's, and it's really interesting that, you know, um, that whole internalization process, what creates that, how does it work. But there's some very subtle things, and, I, and here's like just a tip, for example. I see a lot of parents who, um, you know, will say something like, come on, you can do it, uh, you know, do it for mommy, do it for daddy. Or when, when a child does something or a young person it accomplishes something, they say, like, oh, we're so proud of you. And so what they're doing is they're actually linking uh, that person, that child's performance to the acceptance that they feel or don't feel from their parents. And a lot of parents use, I, I'm so proud of you, as a euphemism for I love you. And what that actually does is erode the second psychological need, which is for relatedness. Mm. So um, there's some, some things that we do as children are growing up, and some children are able to uh, internalize these things differently, but other children are going to internalize them suboptimally. Let me give you just another example. Think about this. Was there ever a point in time when your son asked you a question that by the, you know, if there were times when you wanted to just pull your hair out? Like, he would always ask you the question, Why? Why, 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 why? You know, they're constantly asking why. And so if you would ask, why are they asking why all the time? It's because they love to learn. They love to grow, which is the third psychological need for competence. They love it so much. It's part of their inherent nature, right? Mm -hmm. And so what do we do? We say, oh, wow, you love learning so much. We're going to put you in school, and we're going to evaluate how well you learn. Mm. And we'll give you sticky, you know, uh, smiley faces, or we'll give you check marks, or we'll give you grades. And so what we do from a very early age is we take something that children naturally love to do that's within, you know, the psychological need that they have that they're born with, and we start to externalize it immediately. And, and so what happens, we're finding, is that by the time kids get through school, they've lost that love of learning mm-hmm. because you cannot be intrinsically and extrinsically motivated at the same time. Mm. You can't have a love for learning and be learning for the prize, the reward, the grade, the parents' approval, you know, to, get, to be, have someone say you're proud. You can't hold both of those in your, your actions at the same time. 
And really, school is not necessarily about learning, right, and cultivating that love for learning. It's about... That's what we should be focusing on, Teresa. You, you hit the nail on the head. Right. School is, is totally different. Their objective and their outcome is completely mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Dr. Edward Deasy, who is the father of the theory that we're talking about called self-determination theory, uh, has done extraordinary, and, and the whole community of scientists in the self-determination field have done so many astounding research uh, studies in education. And Time Magazine a couple uh, years ago came out with a, a cover story that said, should we, you know, what if we started paying kids to, you know, to get good grades and to get through school? And Edward Deasy's voice, he, they quoted him, was like the lone voice in this sea of people. And he's saying, you, you know not what you're doing. You don't understand that you're literally killing the very thing that you're trying to promote mm. in our children. Wow. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of schools, right, especially in the inner mm-hmm. cities that we're trying mm-hmm. to motivate the kids to stay in school by giving them gift cards and right. electronics and all sorts of things. Oh, Boy, yeah. do we have it's it backwards. Just, and I know, we, You know, it's totally backwards. And then we wonder why people get into the workplace conditioned around pay for, for, for performance and that we have to bribe them in order to get them to do what we want them to do. It's because we've got this society that we've conditioned to, oh, the reason you're doing what you're doing is for something other than what you're doing. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I think a parent's job is the most difficult job in the entire world because there's so much emotional stuff that comes into that relationship, right? And you, you want the best for them, and you've got your own stuff that you're working with. I was going to say, and then you're not always at your best, Exactly, right? and you're projecting, and, you know, when your child asks why, 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 and you're exhausted, and you have a bad day, and you give a bad response, it could traumatize them. I mean, it's just the whole... The whole well, I think, it's, you know, Teresa, I love that um, observation, because if you think about it, because adults don't understand their own psychological needs and the fact that their psychological needs in those moments when they're not self-regulating, the reason they're not self-regulating effectively is because their psychological needs have been thwarted. Mm -hmm. So for some reason in that moment, you know, a child starts crying or acting out, what does that do? It erodes your sense of autonomy in that moment. You can't do what you had planned to do. You can't do what you want to do because you've got this kid crying. That's when you need to be able to say, wow, I could be, you could have a choice. You can either do it because you have to. You have to take care of that kid and you're resentful and then you end up, you know, acting out of pressure or guilt or, you know, frustration and the kid feels that, right? And they get that vibe and that energy. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, I have another choice. I could shift my motivational outlook and I could say, you know what? This is not a great moment right now, and I chose to have this child. I have a value around being a good role model. I have a value around realizing that if I'm the person I want or can be in this moment, it's going to be better for me and my child down the road. You know, if you can understand that that's what's happening, is that your autonomy has been eroded in that moment, that it'll enable you then to shift, you know, to self-regulate, to be more mindful. And we actually have three what we call MVPs of being able to shift your motivational outlook. And it's, the MVP is mindfulness, values, and purpose. So to be mindful, you know how parents always said count to ten? Right. That's a mindful moment. That's why, you know, that's why we say as a parent, I'm going to count to ten. It's so that you and your child can be more mindful in that moment. So if you recognize that, say, okay, I need to be more mindful here. What are my choices? Because mindfulness gives you a, a choice. You don't have to act 
the way you were about to react. You have choices, and then you can have choose, what are my values? You know, and, and so that's, that's something I would say that if you're a parent or um, a leader, one of the first things you need to do if you truly want to create an optimally motivating workforce or home is you need to have conscious conversations to help people identify and develop their values. Organizations do that all the time They with their own values. They, they have their own values and purpose put on cards or on pillars right. in the organization or on a plaque somewhere. But then they stop. They don't ask individuals, what are your values? What values are you using to come to work with every day? What values are you choosing to make decisions with every day? What values guide the energy that you spend at work every day? So, so leaders really need to have that conversation. Well, the leadership training that I've been through uh, has certainly been values-oriented, but also finding employees that share your values because changing an employee's values are very, very difficult. Matching an employee or potential employee's values to your organization's values is a lot simpler, right, and makes well, your organization me, more effective. I'm not going to disagree with that statement, but I'm going to give you maybe a different perspective. Okay. And I think this is, um, if you probably have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to your show. Yes. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make is that they might be very aligned. They're motivated through their values. They might be very integrated. They are motivated through their deep and noble sense of purpose. They might be very inherently motivated. They actually love and enjoy, you know, they built a company or a, a product or a service around what they love, right? Right. And then they assume that everyone else should be motivated through those same values, purpose, and love of what they're doing. And they're missing the boat because individuals can have their own values and bring their own meaning to whatever the work that's being done. They could have their own sense of purpose through the work that they're doing within your organization. They might enjoy something totally different. So to assume that you need to have a values match, I think, is extraordinarily limiting. And the other thing is is that values are choices. And people's values change. Gosh, I hope they do. I hope they evolve. I hope the more we learn and grow and we're educated and we... We live this work. I think that's what wisdom is. I think wisdom is evolving values. And so I would love to think that if you get employees into your organization, that their values are going to evolve um, as they see the organization at work, as they see you at work. So if you're a really wonderful role model, they may start to evolve some values that are similar to yours, but that doesn't mean you have to hire people whose values are directly aligned with yours. They just need to be in alignment with whatever it is you're being asked they're being asked to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And actually, by you explaining it, I think you've explained it um, correctly, how the, the training that I've received. Um, I think you're right. Cool. Um, I think you're absolutely right. That's that's my understanding. I just didn't articulate it that way. Well, and, I, I just work with a lot of entrepreneurs, and they're like, I, I hear all the time, I just am so frustrated because I just can't get people to care about this as much as I do. And I said, well, they're not going to care about it as much as you do, because that's why you started your company, but you need to find and help them find what they do care about. What is it that they care about and that they can find value in? We've all heard of the Four Seasons model of service, right? And service mm-hmm. is a big value for Four Seasons. Right. And every day they they talk about that value and the other values that they um, that they. Um, 
have as a priority. And so their whole organization service is a big value. So are they out there? Are you saying that you don't necessarily find employees or potential prospective employees to be, um, have service as a value? Well, I, I guess service is an action. And so um, I would say um, a person could have a value of service, but it's going to get played out differently depending on what that person's value is. So you might have someone who really values relationships to the point where, so I'm checking into a hotel and they treat me like family because, you know, they value family and they value having everyone feel like family. You might have someone else who values um, quality and they want people to have a quality experience. And so service for them looks like, well, I'm going to be as efficient as I can getting them through here. I'm going to have them really admire and respect our organization. And I'm going to make sure that every step along the way that they are treated with the utmost of respect. You know, so it's it's still a um, value around service, but there's a conversation that's happened about how do I how do I deliver service in a way that's meaningful to me and still achieves the goals and the, and and lives up to the values of the organization. Hmm. And I think those are the those are conversations that leaders aren't having with people. So I, I mean, I do it all the time. I actually I'll go up you know, at a hotel, for example, or at a restaurant, and if somebody's being, being really crabby, I'll say, tough day, huh? Or, wow, um, has, this been a, has this been a tough day for you? And they'll kind of look at me and go, well, you, you seem like you're a little preoccupied or you seem like you're a little frustrated with, with something. And then I get them talking and then help, you know, kind of through a conversation, help them understand that they have other choices and that maybe they have a value that they that they forgot about that they could be acting on right now that would be more helpful to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, before we sign off today, I absolutely want to promote your book. Um, and you do a lot of work with the Ken Blanchard organization. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to speak to that for a moment if you can, because that's great work. Thank you. Yeah, um, I've had the the privilege of being an author with Ken Blanchard on a a couple of books, Self-Leadership and the One-Minute Manager, and then he wrote the foreword to um, my latest book, Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does. And then um, through the Ken Blanchard companies had this amazing opportunity to develop uh, the Optimal Motivation Training Program and literally have been able to take that around the world, China. In fact, I'm leaving to India next week. Uh, So China, India, all over Europe and the United States, Canada, you know, South America, and we've tested this program, vetted it in every culture, and what's fascinating is that the the training program and my book are really bestsellers overseas in countries like Romania and Russia and um, and India, um, or, you know, countries that where I think people have not had a sense of autonomy, um, relatedness, and competence for so long, and they really, they really get it. They get what what the new science is saying. And so that's, that's been really, um, it's just a privilege is all I can say. It's, it's extraordinary. Very exciting. Well, we will certainly um, promote your book and your website on Living Wealthy Radio, along with a copy of the recording of the show. Your website is susanfowler.com? 
uh, yeah, www.susanfowler.com. And I would encourage people to take, um, there's a free motivational outlook assessment, and it gives you immediate results. And so you could take any goal that you want to and take the assessment, and, deter- and it will tell you, um, based on your answers, what is your current motivational outlook? Which of those six motivational outlooks are you experiencing? And give you a little bit of um, insight into what you could do about that. Very good. I'm, I'm yeah. actually going to have my son and my employees do that. Oh, um, so I think that's great. A great tool. And congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for your insight today. And, you know, motivation is just key, at, right? It is just uh, for anything that we want to accomplish in life. It, it it's, all it's starts. It's a part of who we are as human beings. Right. And I'm so optimistic about the world. I know right now it might be kind of tough what's going on in the world. I think that we're evolving and the more we understand about people's psychological needs and what really uh, is necessary for people to thrive in the world, we can start to make that happen. From your lips to God's ears. (laughs) Thanks, Teresa. Thank you, Susan. Take care. Bye-bye. If we remember that people are always motivated, just not in optimal ways, we can take advantage of the science of motivation and apply tried and tested methods for facilitating people's shift to more optimal motivation. We will see a huge difference in our interpersonal relationships and people's health and well-being. Take the time to understand people's psychological needs. You will help make their life more rewarding and successful and yours too. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 